Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now, the continuing adventures of Transporter Lock. <laughs> Hello, Sabriel. Hello, Ken. Oh my gosh, in all the time that Discovery has existed, this is the longest we have gone without a new episode. A whole week. This it's is ridiculous. True. What? This is the internet age. What are they doing to us? I know, we should have binged the whole series by now. <laughs> okay, I'm going to admit something right away with your intro there. It uh, brought something that I was going to mention last week to mind that I forgot. And that's not hearing Majel Barrett saying, and now the conclusion, or various, or the computer voice, or anything. I thought I read that she had recorded enough audio that could be reused and repurposed that she would continue to be the voice of the computer. I th- remember something like that, and I think it was mentioned for the movies. Oh, you know what? I think you're right. I think that was the context. Yeah, I think you're right. But you're right that every time I hear any voice from a computer that isn't hers, it's distressing. Yeah, it's it's something I noticed, which is kind of interesting. And it's something that, I don't know, maybe new fans wouldn't notice, or I, I suspect most people who watch Star Trek casually, even if it's been Next Generation DS9, they have not consciously noted, hey, it's always the same voice, and hey, it's Deanna's mother, and hey, it's Gene Roddenberry's <laughs> wife. <laughs> no, no, so maybe that's just something for us. It is true. But this is about context is for kings. That's true. But there's something else from last week that I want to bring up before we get into oh, context is there? for kings. And that is something that you and I debated for a long time last week. I went back and I rewatched Battle of the Binary Stars. And you are absolutely correct that Michael Burnham intentionally switched the phaser from stun to kill when she fired it to Kuvma. Yeah. We got a little nod to that in this episode, too. We'll talk about it later. Oh, I must have missed that, too. But I... I I'm still as confused as I was last week as to why she did that, but I'm no longer confused as to whether she did that. Yeah, I I don't know if we have a why yet for sure or not yet. And that brings into question something about Burnham's character that sort of encompasses not only this latest episode, Context is for Kings, but the entire series that I think we'll get to at the end of this podcast episode. So let's go ahead and walk through this week's episode. You want to get us started? Yeah, so we begin on a ship that's transporting a bunch of prisoners. They are heading to, they're transferring to Telar after an accident, mining accident there. One of our criminals is Michael Burnham. That's right, and she is well known because this is six months after the Battle of the Binary Stars, and the other prisoners loathe and hate her, even though they are in for much more violent crimes, seemingly. Yeah, one killed three Andorians, and they're all talking about, yeah, they're cold everywhere. <laughs> like, Jesus. <laughs> I know, seriously. But then they find out Michael Burnham is the mutineer, and they are like, oh my god, I had family on the Europa when it exploded, and it's all your fault. Yeah, yeah, they were turned on her real quick. Not that she was talking. Right, she hardly had anything to say, though. I mean, she is ready to... To suffer in silence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the transport ship starts getting attacked by microbes that eat electricity? Attacked and were just like, yeah, these little microbes. It almost reminded me of an episode of TNG where these creatures start eating the hull of the ship. And I think that was something, a nod to that. I wish I could remember the episode. Was it the two-dimensional creatures? Maybe. 
I, I think we're conflating a few things because. I mean, so many creatures have eaten the Enterprise over the years. That's true. That's true. It happened in Enterprise too, I think, as well. <laughs> and one of the reasons they encountered this swarm of electricity-eating things in Discovery is because midway through the transport's journey to Tellar, it changed course. Yep. Yep. Unexpectedly. Yeah, yeah, and the and so the pilot goes outside to take care of these little fuzz monsters, and her tether comes undone, which seemed very irresponsible. Yeah, all of a sudden she just goes flying by the window. They're like, "We're gonna be fine," and she just goes flying by the window. <laughs> and it, it seemed like she was flying in the same direction the shuttle was going. No, she was going against opposite direction. No, no, you're right. No, because she was. I, it looked like she walked. Oh, she went out forward. The yeah, back, she went forward, and then yeah. she flew forward. Yep, she flew forward. So, like, was she, like, falling faster than warp or something? Uh, who knows? But I don't think it was... I think it was all set up anyway. Right. Yeah, this is a minor detail. Moving on. <laughs> and then we get one of the in- most interesting introductions to a starship... A series starship we've seen yet. Yeah, the Discovery shows up with their tractor beam two episodes in a row. Michael Burnham has been saved by a tractor beam. Oh, you're right, you're right. <laughs> and they're really using that trope to death. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this was not the sort of like heroic introduction where it swoops in at the last minute. It wasn't the sort of let's fly up to the ship and slowly go around it and admire all its curves. It was here's the discovery. This is where you are now. Yeah, we didn't have that view where we get to check out the discovery's ample nacelles. Although from the flyers oh, and that. trailers. From, <laughs> I'm sorry, what? That was a nod to Star Trek 2009. Oh, did it have. Uh, Scotty was talking about the Enterprise and its ample nacelles. Oh, oh, I, okay, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> My goodness, what? <laughs> and you said something to me on Twitter last night about the discovery being the NCC-1031? Right when the prisoners are being escorted off the shuttle into their the brig, they pass uh, a number of science officers, but they, they pass a security officer wearing a black badge. And one of the prisoners says to the other one, like, basically saying, huh, I've never seen one of those before. And so I, my, immediate, my first immediate thought is the shadowy organization in Star Trek, in the Federation, known as Section 31. Oh, you think because they both end in 31, they're related? Well, I'm wondering if it's, you know, just could be coincidence, or maybe that was when I sent the text message. It's like, is this a little too on the nose? Because we all know something is up shortly after this scene, which we'll get to. Asaru actually mentioned something like, oh, he's asked, is this a science vessel? And he's like, yeah, but eh. Yeah, two different people say, look at all the science officers, this must be a science vessel, and then none of the crew confirm that observation. Right. You know, which it seems a pretty innocuous statement to either confirm or deny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, but we, we saw on the TV show Enterprise the founding of Section 31, which I think comes from like the actual Section 31 of the Federation Charter. Yeah, actually, you know, Section 31 even exists before Federation. That's right. It predates <laughs> it. Malcolm Reynolds was in it. Malcolm Reynolds. That, wait, which one is Malcolm Reynolds? Uh, the secure... Isn't Malcolm Reynolds from Firefly? <laughs> oh, it might... Yeah, he is. Malcolm um, Reed. Malcolm Reed. Malcolm Reed. <laughs> <laughs> Best crossover ever. brown coat ever. showing here. <laughs> Whew, well done. <laughs> and then they all went to Flynn's Arcade. Yes. <laughs> Flynn lives. Yay. No. Yeah, so this is a very strange science vessel, and they bring the three prisoners 
to the cafeteria and let them just get their meals and sit wherever they want and have no handcuffs or restraints. Another incident, I'm totally sure that it is a setup. Right. Are they trying to test Burnham? Because she is immediately attacked by the two other prisoners, and she puts the smack down on them. Yeah, and I think I think it was a little bit of a test, and yeah, it was to see how the crew reacts and how she reacts to these prisoners. And she certainly held her own, at which point the security officer says, the captain wants to see you, escorts Michael Burnham upstairs to Captain Lorca's ready room, is that his name? Yeah, Gabriel Lorca. Yeah, played by Draco Malfoy's dad, Lucius Malfoy. <laughs> And if you ever thought that anybody that evil could then not be typecast as an evil person, you're wrong. Well, maybe. I don't know. This guy is shady to the max. <laughs> he is. He is. And also, he likes to think of himself as mysterious because he's suffered a ocular impairment that requires that he slowly change light settings. Yeah, it was interesting. His his eyes, they showed a zoo close-up of his eyes. It almost looked like you could see the, the stars in his eyes. I don't know if that was a dramatic effect for television or if he has eyes like Jordy eventually had. Yeah, I was curious about that too. But for the rest of the episode, his eye looked fine. Or we just weren't close enough to see it. We weren't close enough to those dreamy eyes. <laughs> From a distance, they look normal, but you can have close and, oh, you can see the stars forever. Yeah, Captain so... Mama. <laughs> Go on. So, yeah. As we're introduced to him, he has something interesting on his desk that is cooing. That's right. He has a Tribble. Yeah, which is really interesting because Tribbles, apparently, by TOS 10 years later, are not well known in the Federation. That's true. And I think sometime between TOS and TNG, they are completely eradicated. Yes, yes. The mighty Klingons defeated the Tribbles. That's right. The Great Tribble Wars. <laughs> And there's a great statue to it, too. Yeah, so uh, so first we saw Scotty have one in the 2009 movie, which now is 10 years after this show. And now there's one sitting on Captain Lorca's desk. I think yeah. these are a biological weapon. I think that's why they are on the Discovery. Well, it's possible. However, someone brought up a good point. I wish I could claim this as my own. Maybe it was for spy detection. Oh, because Tribbles hate Klingons. Exactly. So maybe once the Battle of the Binary Stars broke out, every Federation starship was assigned a Tribble. Or a Federation starship that has super-secret research. Because, again, they were not well-known in the Federation. Either way, I think that's a fantastic theory. Kudos to yeah. whoever suggested it. Yes, I wish I could. Someone on Reddit. The reason Captain Lorca has summoned Burnham to the ready room is because he wants to put her to use. Yes, he's basically putting Burnham in a prison cell is a waste of resources. Especially at a time of war when you need as many assets as you can get. Right. So she's assigned to some sort of a bio lab run by a... Well, first she's assigned quarters. No, it, yeah, you assigned quarters. Oh, yes, this this character is very popular right now. Really? She is introduced. Yes. I, everyone on the internet was like, oh my god, I love her. Why? I don't know, but the character we are introduced to is Cadet Til Tilly Sylvia. Okay, First off, rank. I thought cadets were only in Starfleet, and that by the time you're on a starship, you're an ensign. I don't know, we saw Cadet uh, Nog helping out on Deep Space Nine a bit. Yeah, but he hadn't gone to Starfleet yet, had he? Yeah. He had? Yep. Oh. And we also saw the entire cadet squad, uh, red squad, in charge of the Valiant when their captain died. Yeah, that was kind of cool. But that was kind of a different circumstances. Very. Okay, then I guess I just forgot all about that rank then. Yeah. I think uh, Wesley was even cadet rank on the ship, for, on Enterprise for a while, the D. I know that he was an acting ensign when he was wearing his gray sweater, and yeah. then he got a field promotion 
to actual Ensign, and that's when he started wearing red. Yeah, possibly. I, that, yeah, it's a little... yeah, that happened in the episode Menage Troy. He was <laughs> going to board the shuttlecraft to go to Starfleet Academy, and he realized how to decode the static to rescue Riker from the Ferengi ship, so he ran that's back right. to the bridge. That's right. And then Picard, at the end of the episode, said, I'm willing to make Starfleet wait for you. I can't make you wait for Starfleet any longer, so you are getting a field promotion. <laughs> uh, but I don't remember him ever being a cadet except when he yeah. was actually at the academy. Perhaps. So. But we've seen other incidents or moments where this has happened. So Sure. So this is a very interesting character we're introduced to. Burnham's yeah, roommate. Redhead. <laughs> Tilly, Another redhead. Uh, yeah, Tilly is a redhead and she seems to be, and this is based off personal experience with acquaintances and friends, she might be on the autism spectrum a bit. Or maybe she's just eccentric. Now, certainly neither of us are psychologists and are qualified yeah. to make that assessment. But, but she was playing this part as people I know and very similar. Sure, that's that's fair to say. And I, I don't want to make a diagnosis for sure. But I mean, she has allergies, which Starfleet has not learned how to cure yet. Apparently, yeah, which is interesting. And she snores, which is why she shouldn't <laughs> have a roommate. Yeah, then she makes this comment to Barnum, says, I've never met a female named Michael before. I was disappointed by that remark because I was under the assumption that, you know, names can change over hundreds of years and over generations where a boy's name becomes a girl's name and vice versa. And I was under the assumption that by the time Discovery happens, Michael is an acceptable woman's name. You know, I think I've even heard it in, like, now. Oh, I have not. I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure I have. But I was just hoping that it wasn't an issue and that we were just supposed to accept this as part of the future. And then, instead, here comes this cadet with the same exact perspective as us in 2017, which is, wow, a woman named Michael, how weird. Yeah, yeah. I, I did feel the same way. Like, that is kind of interesting that she would have that reaction, but it could be a character flaw as well, for all we know. Or maybe she just hasn't gotten out much and hasn't met many other women named Michael. They're out there, she just hasn't met them. Right, right. I don't know. So then she goes to the science lab, right? Uh, actually, that was not the science lab. From my understanding, that was engineering. But that was not the warp core. No, that was in the back. Because uh, when we're on in a few moments, when we're on the Glen, he goes, "This is we're, we're almost engineering." And then to get to the room, and it's the exact same room on the Glen. But then again, they did say that the starship could sustain three hundred discrete scientific experiments. What I'm saying is that maybe it's not the engineering; maybe it's an engineering. I don't know in Star Trek that ever makes that distinction. Well, I mean, maybe since this is a science vessel, which we've never really quite been on, maybe there's a whole deck called Engineering, oh. and there are different labs on it. Oh, it's possible. However, um, yeah, I just pulled up a picture on StarTrek.com, and it has a set of Engineering, and that is that set. Oh, well then. To heck with my theories. <laughs> maybe you and StarTrek.com should host the podcast. Maybe. <laughs> Fine. Okay, so we get this engineering room. Actually, I thought engineering looked pretty cool, but kind of vacant. Where engineering looks like a cross between Enterprise NX-01 and the 1701. With the massive red long hallway behind engineering. So she gets into this engineering space and she immediately encounters the lab manager who is a total jerk. Yeah, Stamets? Is that his name? He's a jerk. Yeah, he is. He's, oh, um, wait a minute. His name is Stammons? Yeah. Oh, that's like the guy who gave the TED Talk all about mushrooms. Is it really? Yes, I'm serious. That's awesome. His name is <laughs> Paul Stamets, S-T-A-M-E-T-S, and he gave a TED Talk on six ways mushrooms can save the world. 
Oh my god, and that is exactly the spelling for uh, Lieutenant Stamets. Not a coincidence. That is totally intentional. He lists huh. six ways the mycelium fungus can help save the universe. They even use mycelium here. Yes. In the show. Yes. <laughs> wow. Whew. Okay. So oh, that's a deep uh, cut. Good catch. So this Stamets is a total jerk. Uh huh. And I don't know why. I mean, he. We kind of know why. He is similar to the ensign in the previous episode. Is like, why are we fighting? Uh, this guy's pissed off that his research has been interrupted by a war. That's true. He and a friend of his were working on the same experiment, and then the war broke out, and Starfleet decided, we're going to split up this pair and give you each your own team so that you can work twice as hard. And this guy is pissed off that he is no longer working with his friend, that his work is potentially being weaponized, and that he has to deal with the mutineer who he feels is the cause for this disruption. Yeah, and he also basically this is the bureaucracy going, oh, you can do two teams, you can go twice as fast now. Which is exactly how it works. Yeah, totally. We missed a scene, actually. We, cut, we skipped one. Very Which one? Important one. So Saru escorts Burnham to engineering. And they have this discussion. This is the first time Burnham has seen Saru since the incident at the Battle of the Binary Stars. Right. It's interesting. He's eating blueberries casually while they're walking down. Which the, we've never seen on Star Trek before. No, no. I couldn't help but wonder... Where is he going to put that bowl when he's done with it? Like, is somebody <laughs> else just going to be walking through the decks and there's, like, an empty bowl on the side of the corridor and they're like, ah, oh, Saru. <laughs> he did it again. Like, you, you need to bust your tables. Or he's just going to, like, leave it on some con at the science station on the bridge. Yep, yep. And then there's going to be, like, blueberry fingerprints all over the panel. <laughs> all over. Oh, it's the worst. Damn it, Saru. How, you, how did you get to be promoted from science officer to commander if you're going to leave blueberries everywhere? <laughs> Maybe that's a privilege of rank. I, wow. I, it takes a lot to eat blueberries in Starfleet. <laughs> but during this whole walking scene, he's showing kindness despite how he's feeling. Burnham, after they get to where they're going, and stops, and she's like, I never thought I'd get to see you again. I saw your... Your eulogy at the captain's funeral, and um, she says, "I want to say," and he's like, and she's struggling. He's like, "You're sorry," and she she nods, and he goes, "I I believe you feel regret," and then he goes, "But he adds, you are someone to fear, and I intend to do a better job protecting my captain than you did yours." Ouch! Deep yeah. cut. Uh huh. That was yeah. That was that was like wow. Totally <laughs> uncalled for. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I know that his species is bred to sense death coming and that he wants to stay away from anybody that can bring him closer to death, but that's no need to cut them when they're already down. Yeah, that was an... But, you know, told her exactly where she, or what, how he was feeling. I guess, but that means that she has gotten crap from the other prisoners, from Saru, from Stamets, just everybody she meets. Yeah, we even saw uh, Kayla from the Shenzhou in the mess hall earlier. Yeah, the other redhead at the con, and she didn't have a word to say to Burnham. No, and she has a haircut like me, though medically maybe needed. <laughs> I was very excited about seeing this on Yes. Put it on Twitter. Your due sustains itself far into the future, Sabriel. <laughs> we also skipped another important thing. Go on. In the crew quarters before this whole scene with Saru, as she's trying to get down to sleep, all of a sudden the the ship goes into black alert. Oh, that's right. That that was weird. I wanted to ask you what was going on. Like, Burnham wakes up in the middle of the night, and it looks like parts of the ship are just f- becoming separate molecules that are floating around before so, settling back into place. It's described later. Uh, Lorca mentioned something about the exterior of the hole gets wet. 
So it was just moisture? Yeah, moisture in the air. From where? We don't know. That one was, that one went unanswered, but he he mentioned some kind of casual comment, like very quick little quip about uh, the ship getting wet when this happens. Black alert happens. Oof. Okay, so Burnham is in the science lab or in engineering trying to work on this assignment she's been given. She works far longer and harder than anybody else without even having the context to understand what she's working on. And she finds a single line of code that is in error, and she brings it to Stamets' attention. Yeah, he's kind of, I think, all snooty towards her and won't answer her questions. Like, she's like, I don't know what this is. You're not going to tell me, but uh, this is your problem right here. Yeah, and Stamets is being very immature. He's not a very good name caller. He's like, go away, lurker. Oh, uh, yeah, because he, he his Skype call get interrupted with his, fr- his Skype call with his friend. Right, he's like, what do you want, lurker? Uh, oh, <laughs> like, I, you can come up with better insults than that in this century. Come on. He reminds me of a the stereotypical in current day when someone just sits at their desk desk all day long and there's no social life outside of his work. Kind of like the future version of that. Great. So he has a desk job in the future. Yeah, but he that's all he wants. He's like the lower decks episode in Voyager, Good Shepherd, where the person just wants to sit at their desk and doesn't want any outside interference. No one bug me. I'm just doing my job. And that's their life. And they want that to be their life. They like that. I don't remember Good Shepherd. Let's see. Oh, yes. I remember that episode. Okay. Yeah. He also is rude because he's like, you're not a Vulcan just because you went to school there, basically. He's like, my uncle's in a Beatles cover or Beatles cover band. It doesn't make him John Lennon. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, apparently, Burnham was advertised as being Vulcan. And so he's disappointed when she shows up and is human. Yeah. Uh, even... Commander Landry, the secu- chief of security, mentioned calling her a Vulcan earlier, too. Yeah, when she observes her Vulcan martial arts, it's like, Vulcan should stick to logic. Yeah. So Stamets is going in and out of this locked area that requires a breath imprint to access, which Burnham finds very unusual. She's never seen that level of access elsewhere. I find just having a breath imprint being very... Doesn't it feel very secure? I don't know why they're going with breath instead of handprint or voice imprint or retinal. I mean, any of them can be faked, as we observe, because Burnham then steals her roommate's breath (laughs) by way of saliva from drooling while she's snoring and breaks into that locked area, and it's a giant garden. Yeah, I think fungus room. Uh, I was not expecting that, and we never really got Burnham's reaction to it either. Just now she had an expression of like, wow, puzzled, puzzled, wow, but no like re- vocal response. But she didn't do anything with that knowledge. Nope. Probably not much to do. So since I seem to be good at going out of order, what scene is next? Just after she is in that room, it cuts away to Lurka and he's receiving a priority message and he discovers that the USS Glenn has been lost during Black Alert maneuvers. Which I thought was a very timely tribute to the recently late astronaut John Glenn. Yeah, that was kind of sweet. Too bad it's a ship that killed its entire crew. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Right, so this is the sister ship to the Discovery, identical blueprint, same layout, and they zip over there to find out what went wrong. And the ship physically seems to be fine from the outside, except maybe for some slight scarring. Yeah, uh, oh, when they when he sends them over, he tells Commander Landry, the chief of, chief of security, says he says, ensure everything related to the project is transferred, and that line seems innocuous until later. We'll get to that later. 
Right. So it is Stamets, the chief of security. It's Burnham. It's her cadet roommate and maybe one or two other red shirts. Yeah. And, and, and yes. Saru, again, vouches for Burnham, saying she is the smartest Starfleet officer I've ever met. Right. And then yeah. Larka adds a little dig to the commander, and, she, and he's like, and he knows you. Right. To the engineering. <laughs> to Stamets. Yep. I love that line. <laughs> so they get over onto the Discovery. It is pretty much abandoned. Lights are all out. It's a very alien-like atmosphere. And I say that with a capital A from the movie. You're right. You know, I, I also don't understand why they brought Tilly. We don't know why. It's never mentioned what her specialty is. Yeah, she's just a cadet who wants to be captain someday. Uh, and I'm wondering if he just sent her to be with Burnham? Because we find out later there's a reason why they were bunked together. But it seems a very odd placement to have a cadet on a mission like this. She seemed pretty confident when she was there. She whipped out her phaser and had a very commanding voice. She did, and she had this... She yeah, was not affected by what we saw. Oh, I was. You were affected? Last week, we talked about Event Horizon, and that was very fitting right now. Um, oh, yeah. With the crew disfigurations and just grotesque, mangled bodies of what happened. Yeah, it looks like the bodies were, like, melted like candles because, like, their faces were all elongated, their jaws were out of shape, their ribs were bursting out of their backs. Yeah, like, one's lower jaw was a good foot away from their mouth, but it was still connected. Yeah, like, every Starfleet personnel on that ship was barely recognizable in their remains. Yeah, oh, that was gross. But then they find some remains that are not Starfleet and are not distorted, but are nonetheless dead. They find Klingon, piles of Klingon, dead bodies of Klingons all over, and they hit these massive claw marks. Right, they see claw marks on the walls, they see doors opening and closing on their own, there are sparks, flickering lights, and Burnham sees something skittering through the shadows. Yeah, and a moment later, somehow the rest of the crew does not hear this growling, of course. Of course not. <laughs> but a moment later, the scene goes dark again and comes back to light, and Tilly yells out, whoever's there in the shadows, come out! And a Klingon comes out and shushes them. Yeah, <laughs> the commander, the chief of security, is like, did he just shush you? And then the monster leaps out and eats the Klingon. Yes. And someone mentioned, like, oh, again, that's not on the show, someone mentioned on Reddit. Again, Klingons are used to show how mighty and tough something is. Right, because if it can beat a Klingon, then you know it's serious. Right. <laughs> so what was this thing? We don't know. This has never been in Star Trek it almost looked like a mini version of that creature on, in Star Trek 2009 on Vulcan's moon that was chasing after Kirk. Oh, that's right. Yes. If it, it, I don't think it is supposed to be that at all, but vague resemblance to that massive creature, but much smaller. I thought it might have been the thing that was trying to eat Han Solo in The Force Awakens. Kind of like that, too. Or it might have been a genetically de-evolved wharf. Maybe. I don't think that would be an odd to evolution. No, but <laughs> that's the last time we saw a creature like that running around a starship. Yeah. And then we had our, in the scene where they're running away from this creature, we had our first red shirt loss of the series. That's right. And he wasn't even wearing a red shirt. No, 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 no one is. They're all wearing copper shirts at best. Right. Yeah. So we lost one person and nobody seems all that worse for the wear. Yeah. They make a race for engineering to get the research. Oh, that's right. There was a line. They're like, why don't we just beam the research out? And oh, Larka it's is shielded. Like, yeah, and we didn't know why at the time. And they find a device in engineering, which I thought was a very intentional word choice. The last time I remember the word device being used that intentionally in Star Trek 
was for the Genesis device. The Genesis, yeah. And I don't think that's what this is. So maybe there's no, maybe it's just a coincidence. Yeah, I don't know if there'd be any way to combine those two after we we know in the future here. Yeah, we haven't seen anything like this yet. And certainly it's not Dr. Carol Marcus's work that we're seeing on the USS Glenn. No, no. So probably just a coincidence. Uh, but yeah, so they get out of there after Burnham leads the monster astray while she quotes Alice in Wonderland to yeah, herself. That was, that was interesting. We find out why in a bit, but that was like, I was like, what did she say? Like, oh, oh, I recognize this. And she's racing through the Jeffrey's tubes, hiding right. from the monster. And then she gets back on the transport. They make their way back to the Discovery, and Lorca says, you did a great job over there. I would like you to join my crew. She says, uh, excuse me, I've been court-martialed. And he says, eh, don't worry about Starfleet. I've been given full discretion to run this war any way I want. And she says, no, because even though I may be court-martialed, I'm still a Starfleet officer at heart, and I'm not going to help you create a biological weapon that is in violation of the Geneva Convention. Yeah, she mentions both Geneva Conventions. However, in real life, we've only had one so far. Right, so there's another one in the future. Yeah, actually, interesting on that date. It was Geneva 2155. We've actually seen that year in Enterprise. That was the year the Coalition of Planets were in talks about being created. Oh, that's right. That is the year that John Frederick Paxton took over the laser on Mars and tried to attack Earth. Robocop. Right. (laughs) That was the (laughs) penultimate episode of Enterprise. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people view that as the actual finale. But uh, that's another here nor there. <laughs> that's right. So this, yes, actually, uh, Memory Alpha is doing a really good job of staying up to date with Discovery, and they've already added the Geneva Protocol to the entry for the year 2155. Oh, interesting. That was not there last night when I looked it up. Correct. It is now. So you see kind of glossed over Lorca's thing, but um, uh, Lorca, which she says in much more dramatic fashion, but he mentions that basically he understands why she did what she did in the Senjiao incident. And he needs that kind of thinking on the ship. Basically, this is where the line, the context is for King's line comes from uh, in this episode title. Which I'm not sure I understand that line. It doesn't seem to be a quote from something else. No, it doesn't seem to be a quote from anything else. However, it is kind of a nod to, you understand what's going on from the outside view. You have the context to understand why you needed to do that when others just fall into place. Most people in a military organization, you just follow orders. You don't have context for what you're doing. And basically, he's saying context is for those who are on the top. I see, not for those who are in the field. Right. Got it. And he understands why Burnham did what she did, and he agrees with it. And so that is the point where he says, I'm sure you love being right, but you hate being wrong even more. So I'm going to show you that we are not making a biological weapon. He does a site-to-site transport, which I don't understand why they don't do that more often in Star Trek. Which which is, in, in TNG, I think it was, they... Make it sound like it's a very dangerous thing to do. Because there's lots of debate on, like, why don't you do this more often? And right. it's some off, off-handed line that Captain Picard is like, yeah, we don't do it very often. But they did it here, and they go right to engineering, and he locks her in the cell, and he injects it with fungus. And we have something happen. He describes what's going on. He describes the, the mycelium spores and whatnot. And she thinks they are creating a weapon. And he's like, no, you're wrong. We're creating a faster method of transportation. Right, so this is a way that they can tap into the weave of the universe and how biology and physics are the same, and they can immediately go anywhere, and a whole lot of other hocus-pocus that didn't make a lot of sense to me. 
Right. And it didn't need to make sense because we know it's not going to work. We do? Because otherwise we're not using it in any other Star Trek. Ah, because if it did work, it would violate the temporal directive or something. Or or just they'd be using it uh, everywhere else. And we know it's not going to work. And uh, the speculation here is that it's one of the... It's mentioned that a number of trans-warp methods of travel have been researched but never panned out. And this is one of them, we think. And they briefly show Burnham in a variety of environments. Was that a simulation or was she actually temporarily transporting to all these planets? So Lorca mentions the memory of these spores in a very loose hand. I'm not saying that they have memory necessarily, but where they've been and whatnot. And he taps into that. And she's transported to like one of the moons of Andoria and to Romulus and various places. And even generic mining planet from TOS, because we can see a uh, background of what looked similar to places that were painted for the original series. It was kind of interesting to me. I thought it was like, oh, it's a little nod to generic mining planet. And then she finds herself back in engineering. Yeah. We don't know if that changes her mind. No, we don't know if it changes her mind. We don't know much about this experience. However, what instantly, what it made me think of was the Iconian Gateway on TNG and DS9. That occurred to me as well. An ancient artifact that allowed demons to vanish into air and appear from nothingness. Uh Uh-huh. And this was a highly sought-after potential weapon by the Romulans. It came out later in the novels that the Iconians came back and were selling this technology to the highest bidder. That's right, that's right. Yeah, so uh, if Starfleet had something like that, they could master the universe. Pretty much. Wow. Yeah, and we know it was actually working somewhat for the Glen until it didn't. Because Lorca mentioned that they were going 90 light years away. I'm guessing that is what killed everybody on the Glen. So, well, okay, so apparently it had been successful in the past at some point, but we, but they must have tried to push it further, and that's when it happened. And during that Skype call between the engineers, uh, Stamets, whatever, the engineer on the Glen mentioned something about uh, this is what happened when you don't grow your own. You can get more power out of it. Where on the Discovery, they're growing their own fungus thing. And so they're, I think that's going to be important. But it was a very, very... N- quiet line it was very a line that was kind of just thrown out there but i think that's going to come become important later yeah however this was not the final scene that belongs to captain Lorca, whom we see in some sort of a trophy room where he has skeletons and the monster from the glen that has been captured yeah we we, um it almost looks like a laboratory to me like but um almost maybe not a good laboratory where they watch the destruction of the Glen, and then they tr- they pan out, and we see the skeleton of uh, a Gorn. Oh. We see, interestingly, Cardassian Vol. Someone noticed. Wow, good eyes. I didn't catch that. I wish I could. I, I saw the creature, but I didn't know what it was. It was the back end of this Vol, an episode of Deep Space Nine. Wow. And and there was a few other skeletons or or parts of creatures in this laboratory. Hmm. And then um, yeah, he goes to this dark dark cell. That has a force field on it. And he goes, here, kitty, kitty. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this creature from the Glen attacks or tries to attack him, but uh, hits the force field. So even if Lorca is not weaponizing mushrooms, it does seem that he's interested in collecting weapons. That or there is still something going on here. Because as we mentioned, the Glen, it seems like the Glen knew about this creature and had it already because it was shielded. Its engineering was shielded. And he knew about this, and he wanted it on his ship as well. Oh. Because that was when he made that line, ensure everything is brought over. See, I thought that creature either A, was released onto the ship by the Klingons, 
which seemed unlikely, or B, that the mushrooms had transported it onto the ship. It seems like it would have been possible if not for this little bit at the end. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense now. And that's why there was shielding on the Glen that they couldn't just beam through, because they had to go over there and get it. Now, when this happened, when they beamed it over, is not known, because when they're making their dramatic escape, like there's no time and no place to put that thing. So they must have done it later off screen. Right. There's one little scene at the very end, right after that scene with the ominous skeleton room. It cuts back to Burnham pulling her things and, and taking them out in her room again. Until he's surprised, she's got her hair down. She's like, you're back. Burnham pulls a little thing out of her pack. It's a book. Until he's like, oh my God, is that an actual book? Because I think by that time in, in the future, everyone just reads Kindles. Right, or data pads, right. And so she was surprised to see an actual book. And it is Alice in Wonderland, which she was quoting when she was running through the Jeffries tubes. Yes, and that's when we discover that, discover, hit, um, that Amanda was the one who read this to Burnham, Michael Burnham, as the only other human. On, on Vulcan. Vulcan. Yep, Amanda Grayson, wife of Sarek, used to read it to Michael and Amanda's son, of course, would be Spock. Which Spock himself mentioned in the animated series episode, Once Upon a Planet. Uh-huh. So that is pretty much the entire episode, and we've walked through scene by scene. I have some bigger questions, and I want to start by going back to the observation I made about the Battle of the Binary Stars, which was mm -hmm. that Burnham intentionally killed Takuvma. She was one of only two Starfleet officers on that Klingon ship. The other one, Captain Georgiou, died, so Burnham is the only one who actually knows what happened over there. Everybody in Starfleet hates Burnham, calls her the mutineer who started this war, and they are all angry at her for violating the chain of command and attacking her own captain. Nobody calls her a murderer or a failed hostage taker or the person who killed Takuvma. So everybody seems to think that it was the mutiny that started the war. And I am not drawing the cause and effect between those two. I do not see how Burnham bears any responsibility for what everybody hates her for. That was an interesting thing because, yeah, she's the only one who knows what happened on that ship. I mean, sure, she put it in a report. People, commander and above, might know what happened there. But that's not what they're mad at her for. Yeah, they're mad at just having a mutiny. And this is, in TOS a few years later, Spock mentions that there has never been a mutiny in Starfleet. But we know that not, that's not true with this incident. And it seems like the entire Starfleet knows that there was a mutiny. They even call her Starfleet's first mutineer. Yeah. And the, the, trans, the folks on the transport, the prisoners, one of them mentioned that like, she lost her cousin on the Europa... And she blames Burnham. But why would you blame Burnham if there was a mutiny? Unless the rumor or something was said where the mutinous act is what started the war. But we're not privy to that yet. And it was a failed mutiny. Captain Georgiou ended up handling the Battle of the Binary Stars exactly the way she wanted to. Yeah, so I'm wondering if there's something we don't know yet. I mean, we, we, maybe we don't have context because we're not kings, Ken. But we should be. Yeah, we're, we're the outside viewer. We actually kind of are the kings, but maybe it's context we're not aware of yet. It's too early for this show to be confusing us this much. I don't know. I don't know. I, like, some things seem to fall into place, like, one episode later. Well, you know, this actually brings into mind a theory that was shared with me by our mutual friend Susan Arndt of Genie Online, as well as the Continue podcast. She watched the first two episodes. She tweeted that she thinks she'll like the rest of the show more than the first two episodes. I asked her why that is. She said she has a theory that Discovery was meant to begin with Context is for Kings. That was supposed to be the pilot. It introduces the characters. It introduces the Discovery, which is the namesake for the show. 
and she thinks that this episode was shown to test audiences, and they couldn't get it. They didn't know what was going on. Uh-huh. And so, and so after the fact, CBS went back and shot the first two episodes that we have now seen, The Vulcan Hello and Battle of the Binary Stars, almost as prequels to the pilot. I can totally see this. And so I went into Contexts for Kings with that mindset, and I watched it thinking, would any of this make sense if this was the first episode I had seen? And I admit, it would have been hard to get in. Like, what did Michael do to her captain? Why does everybody hate her so much? What is Saru talking about, and what is their previous relationship? But I I think I could have made the leap, and I would have been more on board with the idea that things will be revealed in time. I I get behind this entirely because the, just your introduction, the beginning of this episode, talks it's prisoners talk about you don't know who that is. That's Michael Burnham. Then you say like this is what she happened. This is what happened. This ship was lost. This is that. This is that. I'm like oh, and then we get to see Matilda. Like I've never met a woman named Michael before. It's totally intended to be pilot material. Right. So I think now that you have seen it, knowing it's the third episode, and now that you have this new framework, it'd be interesting for you to go back and watch it again. Oh, and I will be. Well, no, I just did that. No, so I've watched it twice now already. Yeah, I've been watching it again now, so... So now you can watch it a third time. Yeah, I'll do that later this week. Another thing about Discovery, which is very different from other Star Treks, which is... It has a very serial nature. Like, obviously, one episode is picking up right where the last one left off, more or less. And Star Trek has done that before. Deep Space Nine did that. Enterprise did that. But even in those shows, they had at least two seasons where they could just do whatever they wanted. The episodes were very episodic, and each character could have their own episode. I'm not sure that's the case here. Discovery really does seem like a show you need to watch from the beginning. It does feel that way. And that was kind of one of the complaints with Deep Space Nine, where it was very, the later seasons were very much a, if you miss something, you're missing the whole season kind of thing. But I loved that about Deep Space Nine. So did I. So did I. It was, I liked that. It was Deep Space Nine was kind of a, ahead of its time because that was not common in the late 90s. But I think it worked only because we had already had so many seasons in which to get to know the individual oh, yeah. characters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know that we're going to have an episode that focuses on Tilly. Well, you know what? Uh, with this episode, a lot of people, a lot of people's comments, like, like I agree, like, oh my god, this is Star Trek again. Well, I don't, I don't see the again, but a lot of people felt like this was again because we had the, the random science mystery, we had the kind of intrigue, and a lot of people felt like this was a classic episode. Really? Uh huh. When they were running through that ship away from the monster, it felt more to me like a Star Trek movie. I mean, I, I maybe. Budgets are better because they would do like dramatic rescues in the future, but it was always beam them away immediately because of budget constraints or whatever like that. Right. I mean, the closest I can think of to what we saw in Contexts for Kings when they're running away from the monsters in any previous Star Trek is in First Contact when the Enterprise is boarded by the Borg. Yeah, yeah. Or I would say even the any time when they have to get to escape pods. I was think my first thought was uh, pilot of Deep Space Nine, like the very opening shot where Cisco is getting off his ship. The Saratoga at Wolf 359, which again was the Borg. Borg are very action-oriented enemies. Yes, they are, for people who don't move very fast. Right. <laughs> They're basically mechanized zombies. Uh-huh. Yeah, so Discovery is very different. I, I don't know that I would be watching it if it didn't have the Star Trek name. Like, if it was called The Expanse Discovery, I probably never would have tuned into it. It's similar to, like, um, 
Gate or Stargate, Atlantis, Stargate, whatever versions they had. Like I've heard it's really good. I've just never gotten around to watching it. And if you do, it'll be because you love Stargate. Yeah, and that might be the same here too. Yeah, I I hope that I have not yet gotten the Star Trek vibe from this show. I know you said a lot of people feel like they finally got it in the third episode. I haven't yet. I hope it happens because I feel like I would have to continue watching the show just because it's Star Trek, and I don't want to hate watching it every week. Uh Uh And also, I don't want to stop watching it because that's a violation of my nature for there to be a Star Trek that I'm not watching. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying I don't like the show. That's not true. I do enjoy watching it, but I watch very little television, and Star Trek is always something I've made an exception for. And I've always enjoyed it a lot, but you know, it's a it's a very different context. It is. It is. It's a very different Star Trek, and yeah. I think that's good. Maybe maybe TV has just changed in the last fifty years and fifty one years. I'm one of those people who can say, you know, this isn't for me, but that's okay because I am not the average TV viewer. I canceled my service seventeen years ago. I have never gotten Hulu or Netflix or Amazon Instant Video or any other streaming service. So this is my first TV show that I'm watching as it airs in almost 20 years. Isn't it painful that you have to wait a week for an episode? (laughs) Like, I'm the same way. I haven't had cable since uh, probably 2000 as well. And other than where I was, like, college. But I didn't pay for it. This whole, like, weekly release instead of the Netflix binging is, like... It feels like a step backwards to me. I'm not accustomed to Netflix binging, but I am accustomed to DVD binging. Uh-huh. Same, same, similar concept. So that's how I caught Buffy, actually. The whole show had gone off the air by the time I found out about it. And so I picked up the entire first season, watched it in a weekend. But back then, they were releasing the seasons on DVD six months apart. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd watch an entire season of Buffy in two days and then have to wait six months. <laughs> you had the Netflix experience basically right there. Pretty much, yeah. So it's interesting to be watching Discovery on a weekly basis. And I am definitely, of course, committed to continuing to watch it. And I am definitely enjoying aspects of it. And I'm enjoying chatting with you about it because I don't mean to belabor this pun, but our conversations help me appreciate the show by putting it in a new context. Oh, absolutely. It's been one of these common uh, talks about the binging of Netflix, or Netflix binging has removed the so-called water cooler talk where you can talk about the episode the next day. Because you never know where someone's at. That's right. You know, if you don't watch Game of Thrones the night it airs, you have to stay off social media until you do. Yeah, like, I didn't watch I didn't watch Star Trek until, like, 30, 40 minutes after it aired. And, like, oh, no, I can't, I have to stay offline everything. Even you accidentally starts talking on Twitter, and I'm like, ah, no. Right. You, DM, you DM'd me, like, I took off my watch and just threw it away. <laughs> yeah, I had finished the episode, and you hadn't even started it yet. I'm like, Ken, no, and took off my anything that had a notification and just focused. <laughs> oh, what a world we live in where we have to just disconnect. And I mean, spoilers can come to us even if we don't go looking for them. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Life is hard. <laughs> All right. So we have plenty of theories about where the show is going, but we have shared them as much as we can, and we will continue to evaluate our guesses as... The show continues. So there's another episode coming up this coming Sunday night at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time on CBS All Access. And we'll be here with another episode of Transporter Lock. I can't wait. 
I also want to thank everybody who has left reviews for us on iTunes. Yes, thank you so much. We have a review from NMR Jess who says, Ken and Sabriel bring years of combined fandom to a fun discussion of the brand new Star Trek Discovery series. I'm enjoying discovering each episode with them as it airs. Thank you, NMR Jess. Thank you so much. If anybody else wants to leave a review on iTunes, that would be great. You can either just click a number of stars and be anonymous, or you can leave a comment and headline like NMR just did. Her headline was, Great Friends and Super Fans Explore the New Show. (laughs) The reason we ask for reviews is not just to assuage our egos, but also because... Mostly. Well, there's that, definitely. (laughs) But because there are at least 16 other podcasts dedicated to Discovery, and I've listened to several of them, and they're fantastic, and I would never say you shouldn't listen to them, but we definitely want you listening to ours. And the more people who leave reviews for our show, the more people who will discover our show. iTunes Algorithms puts highly rated podcasts higher up in the search results, and that's where we want to be, and we can only get there with the help of listeners like you. That was beautiful. You should go on PBS. (laughs) Thanks. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter as well, like even the personal accounts or the show account. I love talking about Star Trek. Yes, the official account, which we both manage, is Transporter Lock. You can find me at GameBits. And what's your handle, Sabriel? You can find me at Sabriality. You can just go to Sabriel.me and get a link, because sometimes I can't even spell it. That's right. And there will be links to all those in the show notes found at TransporterLock.com. Brand new website coming soon in time for next week's episode. In the meantime, live long and prosper. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com.